And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me in it to the book of Proverbs chapter 6 for our Old Testament scripture reading. Here the Lord speaks to us through King Solomon as he addresses his son regarding the ways in which we are to keep ourselves from adultery. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, we'll read through the end of the chapter. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck, and when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? And can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and, when, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation, and he will refuse, though you multiply with gifts. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. as we hear our Savior this morning exposit the true scope and nature of what God requires of us from the seventh commandment. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, reading through verse 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be cast or thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord and ask his blessing on it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, um, we come to sit under the spotlight of your word. We do ask that you would let it shine, even in the furthest recesses of our hearts, Uh, and convict us where we have sinned. Uh, And yet we pray that you would not lead us or leave us in despair. 
Lord, that you would turn our eyes to the one who has come to deliver us from our sin and misery. The one who comes to give a righteousness that comes apart from the law. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I do think there's this natural tendency that we have. Uh, Perhaps it's ingrained in human psyche. But I think there is a common tendency that we have to think that God somehow loves us on the basis of our own moral goodness. Last week I described it as something like having some form of spiritual bingo card. Perhaps we could continue with our examples, uh, even looking back on my own life, uh, particularly in high school. I was a, a pretty decent kid, made okay grades, maybe not the best, but not the worst. Never got arrested, never did drugs, never touched a drop of alcohol till far after I had turned 21. Um, if you recall the infamous book on dating that came out in the 90s, I can say that I never kissed a dating hello, much less goodbye. Uh, and in fact, I was in the marching band and played tuba, so even if I wanted to commit adultery, I can guarantee you that that was not something that was ever going to happen. If you were to compare my outer works with a superficial reading of the law, where one restricts the offense of adultery to the bare act, one would think that I was doing pretty good. You might look and say, ah, yes, here is the poster boy for sexual purity. And as far as mausoleums go, I was pretty squeaky clean. But the problem, of course, and the problem that Jesus is getting at is just that. That to look at righteousness at a superficial level makes you look like a whitewashed tomb at best. You visit some of these beautiful cemeteries with these mausoleums, they might look architecturally sound and are indeed beautiful. But what lies at the heart of every mausoleum is, in fact, a rotting corpse. Jesus speaks of a righteousness that must exceed this kind of righteousness that had pervaded the religious culture of his day and age. God requires a righteousness that courses through the veins of the human heart. In our passage this morning, our Savior addresses the problem of a shallow righteousness, particularly as it regards the seventh commandment. Here we find that our own works, even on our best days, are like filthy garments on a cadaver. No one would ever want to put it on. And here we see that Jesus, our Savior, recalibrates the initial intent and scope of the law as he probes the depths of God's righteousness that he might expose our superficial grasp of what sexual purity really looks like. And then he begins to show us what true righteousness looks like as it characterizes the citizen of heaven. I'd like us to consider this passage from two particular vantage points in two particular stages. First, we will consider the matter of sexual sin in verses 27 and 28. And secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of a violent righteousness as we see here in verses 29 and 30. So sexual sin and a violent righteousness 
Once more, we find ourselves in a position where Jesus is contrasting his own authority with the theologues of his own day. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Apparently, the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' own time had restricted the prohibition against adultery to the bare act alone. Again, we should probably note that it's not that the Pharisees were wrong in condemning adultery. That's not being approved to say that adultery is sin. Jesus is not condemning them for that. In fact, the problem is not that they're too prudish. In one sense, we might say they're not prudish enough. They fail to recognize the scope and intent of what the law really requires in terms of one's own obedience and duty to God. The problem is they've not gone far enough in their condemnation. They are, perhaps we might put it like this, too liberal in their sexual ethics. God's law runs far deeper His commands more comprehensive than the bare physical act of adultery. It leads us to consider, and this is the point that Jesus, I think, is getting at, as we have to ask ourselves, where does the act of adultery begin? Does it begin in the forbidden hotel room? Or the salacious flirting at the local bar? Does it begin with the seductive schemes as you plan to go out late on a Friday night? We see here that Jesus is beginning to probe where uh, the sin begins. As we see here, it does not begin with the act itself. He begins to condemn the eye and the hand. It begins prior to that particular moment of transgression. As Jesus says, the man who looks upon a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery. To look upon a, lustful, a, a, a woman with lustful intentions is, in fact, adulterous. I think we need to be clear here. Now, I remember once having a conversation with a friend in college about this particular passage. And I remember him saying, well, if there's no difference between uh, the intent and the act, you might as well just go all the way and ask forgiveness later. But we need to note here that Jesus is not saying that both of these are equally heinous. Rather, he is simply saying that both are heinous. Scripture affirms that there are some sins that are, in fact, worse than others. Jesus will speak of, in John chapter 19, of one having a greater condemnation than another. Jesus will speak of his own hometowns of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Uh, of being uh, uh, charged with greater guilt than Sodom in the day of judgment for having rejected the gospel. See, the intent and the act might not be equally heinous, but Jesus is not letting the eye gazer off of the hook as the lustful look is itself still quite heinous. An act that, as we see in verses 29 and 30, Merits the judgment of hell itself. Merits eternal condemnation. Here, Jesus will speak of the voyeur uh, and the one who engages in self-pleasure as being cast into hell as much as the adulterer and the rapist. For the adulterous act does not begin with the act itself. Here, we see it begins with the eye. And in fact, we might go even further back because we see it does not even begin with the eye. 
It begins with the sinful human heart, that, that, that the governing principle that so orders and directs our outer organs, both eye and hand, even as the intentional gaze arises from a polluted heart. Now, Jesus will say later in this gospel, in chapter 15, it is what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. Those evil thoughts, those adulterous acts, sexual immorality, and the like. It's the engine that is at fault, and it has corrupted everything that it puts to work. James himself writes saying the same thing, that when a man is tempted, he is lured away by his own desire. And he begins to describe that desire much like a cobra's egg. And you'd say, well, maybe, you know, which is worse, which is more poisonous, a full-grown cobra, or a cute little baby cobra in the egg still? And I say, you know, I don't really want to find out. Both are deadly. And unless the cobra is stamped out in the egg, it will give birth to death. Both are equally heinous, even if one is to be feared more greatly than the other. Again, I think we have to understand this particular passage within the context of of the whole counsel of God. Jesus is not condemning all desire. I might even go so far as to say that Jesus is not condemning all sexual desire. You read Proverbs chapter 5, and Solomon goes to great lengths in uh, 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 joining upon the duty of husbands to delight in their wives and be satisfied with them. We need to realize that Christianity is different from Buddhism. You know, you, you ask, uh, and you look at Eastern philosophy, where they try to address the problem of evil, and they say that evil is grounded in all desire. I want to say, how cruel is that? You, you read Siddhartha Gautama's kind of four ways of alive, those four guiding principles. When he says all desire or all suffering, what, was, what is the cause of all suffering? He does not say sin. He says it is desire that is the cause of all suffering. So what's the solution? Well, if you stop liking things, then you won't suffer. One, that's just simply not true. But then secondly, it's cruel. Our Savior is not calling us to eradicate desire. Rather, he is calling us to reorder it. To have our desires irrigated and reordered according to the standards of holiness that extend to the depths of the human heart. This really gets at the doctrine of what uh, the church has called the doctrine of concupiscence. You know, if, if you're in a, a spelling bee, that's one of your kind of final game-changer words, Right? It's just a big fancy word that means disordered desires. You know, the reality of the fall is that it has disordered our desires where uh, our insides look something like a, a jigsaw puzzle where you take the jigsaw puzzle in the box and you shake it up. Everything is out of place. Everything is out of whack. Everything has been upended and has reordered the inner workings of the human heart. Be it lust or anger, we see that these are uh, particular desires or emotions that are wrong because they are disproportionate or because they have their affection set on the wrong object. 
I think we all recognize that and, and realize that it is possible to love a good thing too much or even too little. It's the great problem that we see that uh, besets us, uh, the human race, in Romans chapter 1. Uh, the people have taken the good created order and have flipped it on its head. They now treat the creation as the creator. They have taken these good things and have made them to be something more than they really are. That is love that has now been put out of bounds. It is a disordered love. It is a love that is, I'm sorry, uh, not out of bounds, but out of proportion. It's the intensity of the love is either too great or too small. But we also find that there are other things uh, where our desires can be sinful, not because they are too great or too small, but because they have been fixed to the wrong object. You think of the 10th commandment when it says, do not covet. And that word there, covet, in the Greek is the same that we see here for lust. When Jesus is speaking of that inordinate desire, you shall not lust after your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's property. There's a proper place to rightly desire one's own spouse. Uh, but to have that desire fixated on another spouse, or we might add a person of the same gender, by default makes it transgressive, even the desire itself. Our Savior's point here is that sexual sin does not begin in the bedroom, and He's not calling us to eradicate all uh, a desire, but to have it properly ordered to one's own spouse. But here we see that his focus is uh, that this sin begins not in the bedroom, but it begins in the very thing that governs the eye and the hand. It is something that begins in the human heart. In other words, the, so, the scope of the seventh commandment, it condemns not simply the physical act of adultery, but also all disordered sexual desires and all sexual immorality, be it in uh, the things that we love, be it in the things that we think, be it in the things that we say, or the things that we do. I think once we recognize how deep God's standard of righteousness runs, it should drive each and every one of us to despair. If that's the standard, who here could stand in the presence of a holy God and say, well, at least I got one out of ten right today? If lustful thoughts and affections are damning, then even the pimply-faced tuba player can stand guilty before the judgment bar of God and be condemned to all eternity for adultery. We look at this and we say, what should we do? Uh, the, the law has exposed me. I am left undone. Isn't that what Isaiah himself says when he sees the Lord? Woe is me, I'm a man left undone. As the law exposes the way in which sexual sin has disordered and upended our hearts and lives inside and out. What should we do? Should we be like my friend who says, well, let's just give up and give in. If, if we all stand condemned anyway, let's just go ahead and do as we please. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. Is there no hope to be found? For the one who has been beset their entire life with disordered sexual desires, regardless of how it manifests, what hope is there? 
Here we see that Jesus begins to counsel us in the path of righteousness, rather than calling us to give up in the fight or to give in. He calls his church to a holy jihad, a holy war, a war that engages against not his neighbor, but against his worst enemy, his own heart. Jesus calls us to wage war against the deep perversions that arise from a polluted heart. You see what needs to be done here in verses 29 and 30. Again, we might ask ourselves, and I think this is what Jesus begins to get at, which is better in terms of punishment? Capital punishment or corporal punishment? And you say, is there a third option? I don't really like either. But Jesus says, Wait, which is better, for you to lose a hand or for you to lose your life? Both, neither sound like fun but one is at least less painful than the other. See, it's not simply a matter of what you do with one's privates. What you do with your eyes and your hands matter as well. The seventh commandment applies to the whole human body. Of course, we might ask ourselves, what does the eye and hand have to do with sexual immorality? But I think uh, living in such a hyper-sexualized culture that we live in, we immediately recognize the implications that this has, be it in voyeurism or internet pornography, indecent exposure and self-pleasure. These things all fall under the broader rubric of violating the seventh commandment. They're considered adulterous acts. They have tremendous ramifications for how we view our own wedding vows, or if we're not married, our own duties as a single man or woman. How many businessmen will spend the middle of the week going on a work trip, frequenting these strip clubs or burlesque venues, and walk away thinking that they have somehow remained faithful to their wives? I remember having lunch with one of my coworkers once, um, and uh, he, him begin saying uh, how he enjoyed frequenting these things and then tried to justify himself. He goes, well, as long as you look but not touch, everything's okay. You haven't cheated on your wife. That flies in the face of the very thing that Jesus is getting at here. How many men will enter a hotel room and order a movie that they dare not order, but they do anyway because nobody is around? We see how this particular command in Jesus' teaching applies greatly to this day and age. Job himself recognizes it. You read the book of Job, and as he suffers unjustly, he suffers for the sake of righteousness, not because he has done any wrong. And yet, in the midst of his suffering, he begins to go back and contemplate his past actions to ensure that he has not done something to offend a holy God. And he begins to reevaluate his life to ensure that he's been diligent in walking the path of holiness. And, and he says, he says, look, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I wouldn't even look at a virgin, much less a, a, a prostitute. See, we need to recognize that these sins are scandalous. They cause a man to stumble, and if he is exposed, they will cause others around him to stumble and fall as well. How many times we've heard a story of a famous preacher or minister or celebrity pastor 
who it comes to light, has been living a double life. Think of the damage that does to the gospel. It is a tremendous scandal, and it's not only him who stumbles. It throws everyone's moral compass in a tizzy. What's the solution? What are we to do? How then should we live? Well, Jesus speaks strongly, and he speaks without apology. He says, corporal punishment's sure better than capital punishment. Cut it off. You've got to ask, is he kidding here? And for any of you who are familiar with church history, there is a, a famous third century theologian by the name of Origen, who, as any other man who struggles with sexual temptation, read this passage and took it quite literally, and he castrated himself. Is Jesus telling us to do the same? Maybe I could put it more pointedly. When I was in seminary, there was a a girl in some of my classes uh, that I was uh, somewhat friends with, and it was very clear that she struggled viciously with homosexual lust. You could tell it was just eating her alive from the inside and out. We talked a number of times about it. There was one who grew up in the South, and even as a little girl, her parents knew how obvious such temptations and besetting sins were for her. And she told me one day that her father had told her in an act of desperation, you have not yet struggled to the point of shedding blood. So as a result, in light of that passage and in light of this passage, she took to cutting herself to try to make those desires go away. And in fact, told me that she had cut herself so badly in college that she bled out and was found passed out in which the college thought it was a suicide attempt. Is Jesus telling us here that we are to engage in cutting and self-harm as a means of reckoning with sinful lust? Right? How many young girls today engage in such acts as a, de- as a way to deal with dark thoughts? Many times, dark sexual thoughts. Is Jesus putting a seal of approval on such behavior. Well, I think there are two things we need to consider. The first, we need to consider the fact that Jesus speaks with very strong language. He uses strong speech, and and I'm hesitant to use the language of metaphor because never ever does Jesus say something strong and then turn around and say, wait guys, I was just kidding. You think of John chapter 6 as Jesus is preaching in a synagogue in Capernaum, and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What happens? Everybody stands up and walks out. Everybody's offended by the strong, violent nature of Jesus' own speech. You don't hear Jesus going, wait, 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 come back, let me explain the metaphor that I am giving to you. Wait, 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 I was only kidding. Now, Jesus was serious, but you have to understand the kind of seriousness with which he speaks. What does Jesus then do? He turns to his disciples and says, are you guys going to leave as well? And then he begins to speak to them about the importance and work of the Spirit and the aid of mortification of sin. 
So on the one hand, we don't want to simply say that Jesus is just using flowery language. And yet, on the other hand, we already see in light of 27, verses 27 and 28 that Jesus is already causing us to reevaluate where sin actually begins. Where does it begin? Well, he's, we've, he's already told us it does not begin with a physical act. And we already know in thinking through these things that sin does not even begin with the look of the eye or even the touch of the hand. Though the eye and the hand are certainly implicated in the sin, long before the sexual act occurs, we find that adultery begins in the human heart. If I could use an illustration, let's say uh, your tires are wearing thin on your car. So you take it down to the local tire shop and uh, you say, I want some new tires put on the car. And they say, well, we looked and you've never had your car realigned. You need a realignment. And you go, ah, I just can't afford it. Not today. Let's just put new tires on the car. Well, what's going to happen? Because your car has not been realigned, it turns out that the wear and tear in your tires, it, the same thing's going to happen all over again. Why? Because you have not gotten to the root of the problem. See, Jesus is speaking in such a forceful way that he's causing us to reckon with getting at the root of the problem. So I want you to, to riddle me this, Batman. If the, the problem of adultery begins in the human heart, what good would it do to gouge out your eye or to lop off your hand if you have still left the heart untouched? See, what I think our Savior is getting at here is that we need to treat sin seriously. And you need to treat it violently. He is not calling for self-harm and cutting as a means of sanctification. Rather, He is calling us to take seriously the nature of sexual sin at the root that we must deal violently with sin, but that violence must be done under the hood, so to speak. To reckon with that organ, the heart, that sits under the hood, and so is the driving thing that operates the hand and the eye and the rest of our body. Here we are called to wage a holy war against our own sinful, depraved affections. There is a, a New Testament word for this that you'll find in your older translations, and that word is mortification. It simply means this, to put to death. Think of the, the, the great weight and gravity with which Jesus speaks of the cost of following him as a disciple. If any man wants to be my disciple and follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. <coughs> what do you do in taking up a cross in the ancient world? It's a preparation for a bloody death, a painful one. And Jesus says this is something that has to happen daily in the life of the believer in forms of self-denial. It begins at the heart. Jesus is going to condemn in chapter 6 those guys who want to make righteousness all about the outer works, where they make fasting all about, uh, and their prayers all about being seen, rather than reckoning with the, the, the real problem, the faulty engine, the heart. Put to death, Paul says, that which is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. That word there being the same root word here for lust, which he then describes as being idolatry. 
You see, the problem of sexual sin is, in fact, the problem of idolatry, and it must be violently reckoned with. This is a matter of the heart, and the force of Jesus' words tells us that this is no laughing matter. Rather, it is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of heaven or hell. Do what is necessary to keep yourself pure. Be it cold showers, internet filters, running, baseball, whatever helps in the fight, then you are to do it. But you cannot stop there with those outer means. Until you learn to put those sinful desires to death by the Spirit, there will be no growth in godliness. If you only let the seventh commandment govern your outer works, you will be nothing more than a well-polished gravestone. That is what Jesus is getting at. This is a sin that, 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 that cuts to the core, and so it is a sin that must be uprooted from the core. It is not good enough simply to starve your lust. You also must reorder those desires and put it and direct it towards its proper object and place those love in their proper bounds. We must take seriously how the lustful heart has spent a lifetime controlling eyes and limbs. In the 17th century, there was uh, an Oxford uh, school administrator who began to give a series of lectures to college students, which, of course, at Oxford University in the 17th century meant 13- and 14-year-old boys. And he begins to speak on the nature of what holiness looks like for a teenage boy. And he says this to them. He says, let no man think that he makes any progress in holiness who does not walk over the bellies of his own lusts. He began to turn those lectures into a book, and that was John Owen's mortification of sin. You see, discipleship entails a violent, costly obedience, and that's an obedience that takes the shape of a cross as we deny ourselves daily in service to our Savior. It is a daily act, and we have to cut it off at the root. If you've ever played uh, the, the game at uh, Chuck E. Cheese, the little thing where the little gophers pop up, and you have to hit it on the head with a hammer. This is what we have to deal with in terms of sin. You don't wait till uh, it, it, it's full grown and it's come out. You, you need to knock it out as soon as it rears its ugly head. And perhaps in hearing the scope and the depth of God's righteous requirements, you feel conviction for dark and hidden sins that perhaps before this morning you did not think were all that bad. And now you kind of find yourself like a deer caught in the headlights as the spotlight of God's Word hunts us down. My job this morning is not to leave you in despair to ask the very real question, what is there to be done with the real guilt and real shame that many have acquired over a lifetime of sexual rebellion? Well, I think on the one hand, we have to recognize that sexual sin, in one sense, is unique and different from all other sins. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Every other sin is done outside the body, but sexual immorality is a sin against one's own body. 
Even as we heard read earlier this morning from Proverbs chapter 6, as Solomon contrasts the thief with the adulterer, he says, well, the thief, he gets caught, uh, he's going to go to jail. The adulterer, when he gets caught, there's no escaping the wrath of the husband that he has sinned against by sleeping with his wife. I think we all recognize that, that, that psychologically speaking, the, the weight of shame that comes from sexual sin is compounded so much greater and in so many ways that other sins simply don't hold a candle to. We feel it. We know it. I think all of us, to one degree or another, in this room, recognizes that there, there is not a single person in this room that does not need the saving touch of God's grace in this particular area. It might manifest itself, and it may have manifested itself in various forms, but we are all in need of God's grace. And if you think you are exempt, it is time to re-examine your own heart in light of Jesus' commands here before it is too late. So on the one hand, we want to say that sexual sin is unique in terms of at least the the shame that it brings. But on the other hand, we also have to agree with Scripture and affirm what Scripture says is that sexual sin is not unique, not different from all the other sins. Why do I say that? I say that is because there is not a single sexual sin that falls outside the scope of God's redeeming grace. Paul gives a litany of different types of sexual sins as he writes to the church of Corinth. He says, don't even, don't deceive yourself. The sexually immoral, right? Uh, the, the frat boy philanderer, the serial adulterer, the homosexual, none of these will enter the kingdom of God. And he would have left the church of Corinth in despair if he closed the letter like that. But then what does he say? He says, and such were some of you. All of these sins, as broad broach, uh, in, in broad broach strokes as, as the commandment of adultery deals with every form of sexual sin, we find that God's grace covers them all. To any who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come and by His Spirit has washed you and made you clean. It's the very thing that our baptism depicts. I mean, imagine with me, if you will, that you're with the, the nation of Israel in the day of the great exodus. And after that, that, that long night of passing through the waters, as you're baptized into Moses through the Red Sea, you come out on the other side and the, and, and the waters of the Red Sea come crashing down and they drown the bulk of Pharaoh's army. Any, any member of Pharaoh's army that was, that was in, uh, in the path died. Now you can imagine uh, with me, if, if you will, that you're standing on the, on the other side of the banks and, and you're looking across the Red Sea and you see Pharaoh and, and, and a half dozen you know, soldiers that, that never made it across you know, in, into the path of the Red Sea. They're standing on the other side and they're shouting across the sea. After, and this is after a hundred generations of him tyrannizing you and your forefathers. Four hundred years. Maybe it's ten generations. I'm not good at math. 400 years, he shouts, I own you. You still belong to me. You think of the psychological weight that could have until you look down and you see the tremendous gulf that stands between you and Pharaoh. And all of a sudden you begin to laugh. You go, yeah, okay, you and and whose army? Your army's drowned. 
you no longer have dominion over me. And as Paul writes to the church of Corinth, he says that is what our baptism depicts. Sin will not have mastery over you because you've been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our Red Sea. And though sexual sins may have dominated your past life, even as your conscience rises up to accuse you and terrorize you, and to try to invoke past feelings of guilt and shame of things that you have long repented of and sought forgiveness in uh, seeking the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, those temptations, those, those accusations are no different than if you heard Pharaoh shouting from across the ocean, you still belong to me. That's why Luther would tell the church to tell believers, remember your baptism. This is what Christ has actually accomplished for you. Sin's dominion has finally been shattered. And what great comfort it is in the process of sanctification as we learn to realize that we are no longer bound to that master of sexual enslavement. We have now been bound to a new master. One who governs us in all integrity and righteousness. Though the memories of past sins rise up to terrorize and accuse us, though the voice of the tempter shouts from across the ocean, trying to lay claim on a weary and frightened soul, we are reminded that Christ is our Red Sea. And there now stands a massive gulf between ourselves and Satan and sin. If you have put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your past enslavement to sexual sin, no matter how dark, no matter how odious, no matter how devious, it no longer defines who you are today. It does not own you. Though our sins may condemn us by the law, the good news we have is that God freely gives a righteousness that comes apart from the law. And not only that, He gives us His Spirit who enables us to walk in accordance with the precepts of the law. For those who are beset with guilt and shame, for those who are encumbered with these recurring temptations, remember this, that you have a Redeemer who is willing to pardon and one who is able to give strength in the violent fight against the remaining embers of indwelling lust that continues to burn in the human heart. So turn to Him and find mercy and grace and have all of your sins washed away in the waters of baptism and of faith. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have given Christ to us as our Red Sea. And we pray that you, uh, for for those here who uh, continue to struggle with uh, besetting sexual sins, that you uh, would, in your grace, train them to repudiate the works of darkness. That in your long-suffering, you would lead them to repentance. And then, in your mercy, you would wash them clean. Wash us all clean, for we are all in need of your grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.